From Indiana to Arizona, Florida to Oregon, this is American Radio Journal. On this edition, Biden administration energy policies are greatly restricting new oil and gas development. Patricia Patnode from the Competitive Enterprise Institute is here to discuss the impact. It is the Super Bowl of presidential elections. Super Tuesday is this week, and it could be the day Donald Trump wraps up the Republican presidential nomination. Scott Parkinson from the Club for Growth has the real story. Congress is considering $95 billion in so-called emergency spending in aid to Ukraine-Israel and to secure the southern border. Add in interest, it will cost billions more. Eric Baim of Reason Magazine gets details from Romina Pacha of the Cato Institute. And as Congress debates continued funding for the war in Ukraine, Colin Hanna of Let Freedom Ring USA says peace through strength is still the best policy. I'm Loman Henry, and welcome to American Radio Journal. The Biden administration's war on fossil fuels includes greatly restricting the awarding of new leases for oil and gas exploration. Patricia Patnode is a research fellow at the Competitive Enterprise Institute. She's here to explain the impact. Patricia, welcome to American Radio Journal. Patricia, your article that was published in Inside Sources, you talked about the Biden administration and how they are restricting domestic oil and gas leases. Want to fill our listeners in here on just how severe those restrictions are. They are very severe. They canceled a host of leases in Alaska after many years of negotiations with the Alaska government and with tribes where the leases were in the Alaska Anwar, which is a region. So they basically kneecapped economic development for most of the state of Alaska. And now in Wyoming and in other states where the federal government owns a lot of land, especially in the western states, they own, in some states, over half of the state the federal government owns. They are doing what they can to depress leases and to functionally bully or buy out companies from producing oil and natural gas. Walk us through, if you will, the process by which these leases are normally awarded. Does the federal government advertise them? Is there bidding by the oil and gas companies? How does that process work? So there is a process like I outlined in law. So companies typically nominate parcels of land for lease. It didn't used to cost the money. Now I think it's like maybe like a couple of dollars an acre to nominate, maybe $5 an acre to nominate them. The Department of Interior considers them for for leasing, and then they may go up, and then companies can decide to bid. And companies often hold a lot of leases because you need time to speculate, to investigate, uh, and then you want to like hold some other leases in case where your drilling doesn't really pan out. You know, it's a, it's a rather complex process, and the government has a lot of land that's productive. They know it's productive. They know it's productive since they bought it. In that, there's a lot of oil and gas to be taken out of it. And it is a it is a rather laborious task to get that resource out. So that's why they have this competitive, this competitive bidding process, which makes the government money. And it also makes the state money because these things are taxed at the federal and state level. So a company will nominate a parcel of land, 
take the state of Wyoming, for example, then the federal government will consider putting that piece of land up for auction. And in a very sneaky move, the government has, at least in the state of Wyoming, has been offering up donut-sized land regions for sale, which means there's a significant portion of the land that they're offering for, for lease, that they've approved for lease, and they will not allow the middle section to be leased. So they offer up a donut, which you cannot really produce on because just like anything, you need to be able to go through the middle. You need to be able to travel through. If you're fracking or doing anything horizontally underneath the ground, you need more space to operate. So that, I say, is a very sneaky way that they're also depressing oil and gas production. And I think because it has been successful in Wyoming, we know it's been successful because the industry representatives have have testified before Congress that their companies they represent are experiencing this and are not able to produce as efficiently as they would like to, that they will continue to do that and will do that more because it's working. It would seem to me here, Patricia, that this country has enormous amounts of oil and gas reserves, and being able to tap into those reserves, market forces being what they are, isn't a more plentiful supply something that will result in lower cost to consumers? Exactly. I mean, there's really... I I can't understand why oil and gas prices are what they are, considering the abundance of oil and how happy other countries are to trade with us. Like the abundance of domestic oil and then oil internationally. The United States has so many resources. We are really blessed with rich resources, and yet we are making it more and more difficult every year to access these resources, right? The Inflation Reduction Act was another huge, huge move against oil and gas companies from producing, which every administration has their own agenda, their own goals, right? The Carter administration was similarly, like, not super happy with oil production. They took, like, intentional moves against that. The Biden administration is also very against more oil and gas production, so they're doing what they can. And he was elected, so he's doing what he can using his executive power to discourage oil and gas production. But there's no replacement right now. We don't have alternative resources, especially because we are not allowing nuclear companies to operate and we don't have the capacity to produce with wind and solar in any way to replace this energy resource. So the solution is, I guess we will buy from other countries. I guess we will continue to increase trade with Venezuela and New England will continue to buy natural gas from Russia and ship it in. I guess that's the solution, but that seems quite insane to me, considering how rich we are in resources. Not only that, but when you talk about Venezuela and you talk about Russia, obviously the United States slapping all sorts of sanctions on Russia because of its invasion of Ukraine. What does that do, Patricia, to the reliability of the oil and natural gas supply if we're depending on places like Venezuela and Russia? It makes the grid less reliable if we are not making sure that we have secure access to resources. If we don't allow grid operators, so obviously like the, ele- the electrical grid is regional and that is how we all get power to our homes. If we are not prioritizing reliable, reliable energy to our homes and also reliable resources and to produce that ener- energy, like we are setting ourselves up for blackouts and we're also setting ourselves up for significant pockets of unemployment in areas where there's a lot of oil and natural gas production. In Michigan, there's a lot of small oil well producers. There's also a lot in Wyoming and scattered throughout throughout America. I mean, 
same in even Pennsylvania, which has like a rather small percentage of oil and natural gas production. There's still quite a few small companies and people that receive money from this type of small production. If we get rid of all of that wealth and all of those job opportunities that really support these communities, we're also creating a really significant opportunity for social decay and uh, and community poverty if all of these businesses are suddenly no longer allowed to operate or find it too expensive to continue to producing how they were. We have been talking with Patricia Patnode, who is a research fellow at the Competitive Enterprise Institute. Patricia, tell us a bit about CEI. Also, where can your writings be found on your website? I can be found at my profile on CEI.org. That's my organization's website. I'm also on Twitter at Ideal Patricia. So CEI stands for, obviously, Competitive Enterprise Institute. We were founded in 1984 basically to combat the narrative of the book 1984. We're a leading advocate of regulatory reform. We handle um, a lot of different policy issues. Patricia Patnode of the Competitive Enterprise Institute. Patricia, thank you for taking time to be with us. Thank you so much. Scott Parkinson at the Club for Growth. Well, Scott, for politics, the Super Bowl of Super Tuesday is coming up in just a couple of days. A lot of states are going to vote. Want to give us a preview? Yeah, Loman. Well, it's great to be back with you. We do have Super Tuesday coming up on March 5th, and there's a bunch of states that are going to be casting votes in the presidential race. Some obviously have already had early voting, including my state of Virginia. We've also got 15 other states and one U.S. territory that'll be making their choice known for president of the United States and Republican nomination, and obviously for the Democrats as well. Uh, Last week, we saw Michigan go overwhelmingly for President Trump over Nikki Haley. And I think that we're going to see more of the same when it comes to Super Tuesday and all these other Republican states. I just don't think that the Haley campaign is able to put together enough support to actually defeat Donald Trump in any of these areas. And we also saw AFP, the Americans for Prosperity Action, their super PAC withdrew their support and funding for Nikki Haley. So when the money starts to dry up, you start to wonder how long the campaign can continue. And a lot of people remember from 2016 how John Kasich sort of held on as long as he could just so that he could be the last man standing. And, you know, I think it's a similar thing here with Nikki Haley, although I do not expect her to be able to sustain a campaign into the early months of the summer. Although being the last man standing hasn't really worked out too well for John Kasich, has he? We haven't really heard anything from him since. Well, he tried to be relevant during the early years of the Trump administration as one of the early never-Trumper voices, always complaining about the things that President Trump was doing. And I, I would hope that Nikki Haley doesn't go that route. She's been a lifelong Republican. But when you look at the results in South Carolina from, I guess, roughly 10 days ago, uh, a week ago, you had a ton of Democrats because that was an open primary. And those were the folks, according to the exit polls, that were showing up for Nikki Haley. And this is ultimately a Republican nomination. So there's some folks that want to see reforms to tighten up the process and how we nominate people and making sure that it's a Republican primary effort. And other people want to bring new voters into the fold. But I, I feel like it's more of a protest vote for Nikki Haley being exerted by the left not any real dominant force of the Republican right. So we should expect Donald Trump to do very, very well on Super Tuesday. 
And what the other thing that I'm starting to really pay close attention to and we'll be watching on Tuesday night is some of these big congressional battles. Let's pivot a little bit to those congressional battles. Of course, the U.S. House of Representatives, about as evenly divided as you can get here. Uh, what We're down to about a two-seat Republican majority. Uh, we do have a couple of open seats. There are going to be special elections coming up here down the road. But relative to those battles that we have for congressional seats, what states do you see as being highly competitive? Yeah, well, you're right. It is, it's 219 to 213 right now, meaning Mike Johnson can only lose two votes or else it's a dead tie and there's no tiebreaker in the House. That means that he loses the vote. And so he's operating underneath a razor thin majority. I am watching races in Alabama, Texas, and North Carolina. Those, I think, are some of the most competitive and most interesting Republican primaries. Starting out in Alabama, you may recall that Republicans lost a congressional district due to a Supreme Court case related to racial boundaries in Alabama. So what happened was you've got two Republican incumbents that are pitted against each other, Congressman Jerry Carl and Congressman Barry Moore. Barry Moore is a member of the House Freedom Caucus. He's somebody that the Club for Growth PAC has previously supported. And that one's going to be really tight. I think that Jerry Carl sort of has a lot of the Alabama special interest money that's been supporting him, more of the Republican establishment. And then Barry Moore is more of an anti-establishment type of candidate, given his association with the House Freedom Caucus. So it's, it's sort of a night and day difference in terms of personalities there among those two members. And I think that that'll be an exciting one to watch on March 5th. Then I would pivot over to Texas, and you've got an open race there following the retirement of Michael Burgess, who is a a pretty senior member in the Texas delegation. And this is the 26th district. Uh, There's a young man named Brandon Gill, and Club for Growth Action is supporting him, and Club for Growth PAC endorsed him. Brandon is the son-in-law of Dinesh D'Souza, and he's been sort of a, a young man, graduated from Brown University, and has just been a rising star in the conservative movement. President Trump endorsed him, but Texas has runoff elections. So in order to win on Super Tuesday and avoid a really costly runoff, Brandon's got to get over 50%. And the next race that I would sort of pivot over to is in North Carolina. There's several open races right now that are very, very contested. And in North Carolina, you only have to get 30% of the vote in order to avoid the runoff. One of the big races there involves, uh, I think it's the 13th district. There's a man named Fred Von Cannon. He's running as a, as a conservative, has been endorsed by the House Freedom Fund, which is sort of the political arm of the Freedom Caucus. And I think he would be an outstanding member. Uh, Club for Growth Action has also endorsed in another race for Bo Hines. Bo Hines, you might recall, was supported by the club last cycle as well came up a little bit short in in his race in the general election. So he's given it another shot. And ultimately, I think that there's five open races in North Carolina. Some of those will avoid the runoff. Some of them will certainly head to a runoff. But those are the races that I think all the listeners are going to want to be watching. And of course, if, if you're in one of these other 13 states that are casting presidential primary ballots, some of them do have Republican primaries as well. Scott Parkinson at the Club for Growth. Scott, a few words for us, please, about the club. 
Well, Club for Growth is a membership organization based out of Washington, D.C. Check out clubforgrowth.org where you can actually sign up and become a member for free. Scott Parkinson at the Club for Growth. Scott, thank you for being here. You're welcome. Add in the cost of interest and that $95 billion aid package Congress is considering for Ukraine, Israel, and to secure the southern border skyrockets by billions more. As Eric Baim of Reason Magazine learns from Romina Bacha of the Cato Institute. Amid a bunch of other fiscal deadlines in the next few weeks, Congress is expected to take up an emergency spending package for aid to Ukraine and Israel, also to spend some money on the southern border. The price tag of that package, we're told, is about $95 billion, but my guest today will tell you the actual price tag is quite a bit higher. Hi, folks. I'm Eric Bain with Reason Magazine. Thanks for joining us on this edition of American Radio Journal. My guest today is Romina Baccia. She is the director of the Federal Budget and Entitlement Policy for the Cato Institute, and she's also the co author of a new Substack account, The Debt Dispatch is the name of that one, where she covers periodically important issues dealing with uh, federal deficit spending, federal budget, all of that. Her latest piece there is the one that I want to highlight today. It's about emergency spending and specifically about this $95 billion package that Congress is set to consider this week. Romina, thanks for taking some time with us today. Thanks for having me, Eric. Aside from all of the the budget issues that are circulating in Washington right now, there's also this emergency spending package that includes, you know, money for Ukraine, money for Israel, money for the border, a whole bunch of of supposed emergency spending here. And you've written a great piece at the Debt Dispatch this week looking at that and looking at the, the true cost of it. Now, the Senate says that that foreign aid bill, this emergency spending bill is going to cost $95 billion, but... Take us through why that's not really fully capturing the uh, the actual price tag here. Yeah, you see, Eric, this additional $95 billion comes on top of what's already projected to be a roughly $2 trillion deficit for this year. And so we can therefore assume that every single penny of that $95 billion, if this goes through Congress, will add to the deficit. And with the deficit come additional interest costs, and that's where the discrepancy is, is that the way that Congress reports out the cost of this foreign aid bill is that they pretend like uh, interest is uh, is not an issue, but it is. And so thankfully, the Congressional Budget Office has put out a handy tool that all of your listeners can play with. It's very simple to use. It's just an Excel spreadsheet. You plug in some numbers and say, okay, if Congress increases spending by $95 billion, what is the associated interest cost of that over the next 10 years? So that's all we did. We just plugged in that number and we got 41 billion. So that means that a bill that's advertised as costing 95 billion is going to clock in much closer to 136 billion over the next decade. And I just want to be clear about this. That's because we're we're borrowing every single dollar that we're spending in that emergency spending package, right? I mean, if it were paid for out of tax revenues, if there was no borrowing happening, then it would be at least close to that $95 billion total. It's, it's just because we're borrowing all the money. That's right. And we're borrowing all the money because this is outside the budget. It's not included in the budget. And we're already spending almost $2 trillion in excess of what Congress will collect in tax revenues. So, yes, every single dollar of any additional spending is going to add to the deficit and therefore come with that interest price tag. I think that's a, I think it's a great point. I think this is really underappreciated. And in fact, this whole discussion about emergency spending is something that's that's really underappreciated, but something that you, Romina, have, have really put a, a focus on at the Debt Dispatch and in your work at Cato. And I think that's fantastic. In fact, you, you've re- recently written a, a paper that looked at some of the 
uh, the sort of totaling up over the last few decades, the amount of emergency spending. Um, and it's a, it's a staggering figure. I mean, it just doesn't honestly get talked about as much as it should. It is truly staggering. It's about $12 trillion, which if you look at the total publicly held debt, what Congress has borrowed from credit markets, which is around $27 trillion, it's over 40% of all borrowing over the past 30 years just in the form of emergency spending. And what's, what's deeply troubling is that the, the Congressional Budget Office and the Government Accountability Office, they don't really report on emergency spending in the aggregate. What we had to do, in particular, my research associate Dominic Lett, is go line by line through all the supplemental spending that Congress did over the per, past 30 years and labeled it as for emergencies, uh, which, by the way, there is not like a clear rule that Congress follows consistently about what emergency, what, what should qualify as emergency spending. It has become a very convenient label to basically get about, around budget constraints. When Congress adopts say, a top-level spending limit for how much they can appropriate in any given year for defense and non-defense programs, if they call something emergency spending, it means they get to spend that on top of that amount that they agreed to. It's always extra spending. And so it's not even clear that all of that $12 trillion was indeed responding to actual emergencies. We've seen increasing reliance on this label of emergency spending to get around uh, budget constraints, to get around spending limits. And that's the other aspect that's, that's troubling. And so we're really trying to build some more awareness that Emergency spending is not just this one-off time-limited expenditure that happens every once in a while, but it's actually become a, a key part of the federal budget, and we need to pay more attention to it and rein it in because it is actually a major contributor to our deficits and debt. just want to reiterate, more than 40% of our publicly held debt can be attributed directly to emergency spending just over the past 30 years. Yeah, we've actually got a piece in the latest issue of Reason Magazine that looks at some of that, pulls some of the numbers from your report. I mean, it really blew my mind when we were going through that. Something like $500 million in supposedly emergency spending just to cover fuel costs for military vehicles. Like, that that seems like something you should budget for. You got to put gas in the, in the military's trucks, right, if you want them to run. Fascinating stuff here, Romina. We are unfortunately out of time for today, but really interesting stuff here and, and something that I think just doesn't get enough discussion in Washington, which is looking at the true cost of emergency spending and maybe even more important than that, to your last point there, looking at whether these things are even uh, emergencies in the first place. Like, that word means something different, I think, to most people than what it means to the policymakers in D.C. Thanks for taking some time with us today. Thanks for having me. And again, that's Romina Baccia. She is the director of the Federal Budget and Entitlement Policy for the Cato Institute and also the author of that Substack that I mentioned, The Debt Dispatch is the name of it. Find that at Substack.com. Uh, fantastic stuff from Romina. I'm Eric Bame. Catch me right back here next week on another edition of American Radio Journal. Funding to continue helping Ukraine fight off the Russian invasion is a hot topic in Congress. But on this American Radio Journal commentary, Colin Hanna from Let Freedom Ring USA argues peace through strength is the best way to proceed. Peace through strength. That famous concept most often associated with Ronald Reagan, but originating as long ago as the Roman Emperor Hadrian, is not limited to military strength. Economic strength is also productive of peace. Economically weak nations are reluctant to challenge the strongest economies, just as militarily weak nations 
are reluctant to challenge the strongest militaries. Not only is strength conducive to peace, weakness is provocative. Ronald Reagan's economic and military philosophies of strength were so effective that together they broke the back of the Soviet Union and won the Cold War. The current administration is in the process of doing the opposite, and the opposite consequence is looming, a return to the Cold War that empowers Russia. Behind the Biden administration is the world's largest national economy and the world's sole remaining military superpower. The Russian economy is much weaker than most people realize. It's behind China, of course, but also behind Japan, Germany, India, the United Kingdom, and France. Yet because of Vladimir Putin's posturing, it is perceived as much larger. The weakness projected by the increasingly frail and feeble President Biden ignores our strength and empowers Putin to behave like an international bully. Nowhere in the world is that more evident than in the Russian assault on Ukraine. Some misguided isolationist Republicans are now threatening to withhold further funding of Ukraine's military defense. That is flirting with disaster. We must not allow them to prevail. Putin must be stopped or he will continue to expand the footprint of Russia until it encompasses a minimum of four additional countries, Estonia, Lithuania, Moldova, and Belarus, and possibly more. As the Wall Street Journal's chief foreign affairs correspondent Yaroslav Trofimov wrote over a year ago, a potential ceasefire leaving Russia with a large chunk of Ukraine and a capacity to rebuild its depleted military and to prepare for new offensives would end up putting other European nations in Mr. Putin's crosshairs. Estonia's Prime Minister Katja Kallas said in an interview that Putin will come after the Baltic countries if he succeeds in Ukraine, and this is why we have to do everything so that he doesn't succeed in Ukraine. If he gets away with this, nobody can feel safe. Earlier this year, the journal invited students to submit 250-word essays on American aid to Ukraine. One of the published essays was from a Penn State political science student named Eric Olhoff. Here's a portion of that essay. Quote, During the Cold War, the U.S. designed and procured military equipment with a specific mission in mind, large-scale conventional war in Europe. America then spent trillions of dollars after the Cold War operating and maintaining this equipment in a state of readiness. After preparing for this exact situation for several decades, and praying it never comes, it's here. When the U.S. sends military aid to Ukraine, it sends assets such as the Stinger, Javelin, and Patriot missiles. The U.S. could stop sending aid to Ukraine and leave our assets stateside where they would collect dust and accrue maintenance costs. But doing so would erode America's standing with its allies who already doubt that the U.S. will follow through on its commitments. Instead, the U.S. could send decades-old assets overseas to help Ukraine, which would in turn prompt the U.S. to reinvigorate its military fleet to compete with growing powers. If we send military aid, we'll spend some billions of dollars now 
to invest in peace and security for the future. If we don't send aid, however, then we will continue to waste trillions of dollars. We're not giving too much. We're giving far too little. Close quote. The case that Eric Olhoff makes for continued aid is as compelling as anything I've seen, heard, or read on our national media. Continuing to support Ukraine is not a political matter. It's an existential one. Congress should end its bluster on both sides and follow the advice of this student. Vladimir Putin respects strength and little else. Peace through strength works. Neo-isolationism doesn't. This has been Colin Hanna of Let Freedom Ring for American Radio Journal. American Radio Journal is heard on public affairs-minded radio stations all across the country, including WRVI-FM in Ridgeway, Pennsylvania, KLNG-AM in Omaha, Nebraska, along with WLMR-AM in Chattanooga, Tennessee. American Radio Journal is produced weekly by the Lincoln Institute of Public Opinion Research, Incorporated. The Lincoln Institute is completely funded through the generosity of individuals, corporations, and philanthropic foundations, which underwrite the costs of this program. Comments and opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Lincoln Institute or of this radio station. I'm Loman Henry. Thank you for listening to American Radio Journal. American Radio Journal, lighting the brush fires of freedom. Freedom.